The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week, we're focusing on an artist who, before the coronavirus forced museums and galleries to close, was set to be the subject of three exhibitions in New York, Donald Judd. It was the big spring show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, but in the end, it was open for just 11 days. Simply called Judd, it was the first US retrospective of Donald Judd's work in more than 30 years. To accompany it, two further shows were due to open in New York, at the Gagosian Gallery and at the Three Davids Werner Galleries in West 19th Street. But then the world changed. We'd planned to do a special podcast on Donald Judd and felt, despite the shows being closed, it was still worth exploring this enormously influential artist, especially as, from the 23rd of April, you'll be able to explore the Museum of Modern Art show in depth online. So this week we have two interviews about Judd, with Anne Temkin, the curator of the MoMA show, and with Flavin Judd, the artist's son, who's the curator of the David's Werner exhibition. We also have a special contribution from Roberta Smith, the co-chief art critic at the New York Times. Also, Donna DeSalvo of the DIA Foundation chooses a work by Marcel Duchamp for the latest in our series Lonely Works. Before we go any further, just a reminder that you can sign up for the Art Newspaper's free daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and you'll find the newsletter link at the top right of the page. We've also just launched a readership survey where we're asking for your views on everything we do, including the podcast. Please visit survey.theartnewspaper.com and give us your feedback. Now, as I mentioned, the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art may have closed on the 12th of March, but next week the museum opens a special online presentation exploring the exhibition. Before the show opened, our senior editor in New York, Nancy Kenny, went to MoMA to meet its curator, Anne Temkin. Does MoMA's exhibition have a thesis or argument to make about Donald Judd and his career? We have a lot of arguments, I think, and they're a bit embedded in what is actually a very straightforward presentation. We've joked that it's Judd 101 at a certain level. It takes a biographical, or not really biographical, but chronological course. So you meet him as a painter in his early 30s, trying to figure out if he doesn't paint, what does he do next? not wanting to remain a painter because he's convinced that he is not going to be that great a painter. And then we take you through the next 30 years up until the time of his death in 1994, refuting, in a sense, the misconceptions that Judd's work is all alike, that it's very simple, that there's not much variety, that there's not particularly development because a box is a box is a box. And I think one of our our convictions is that showing that, in fact, there's a lot of unpredictability and a lot of breadth in this career that's often been summarized much too simply. Can you describe the journey that led him from paintings to works that were fully three-dimensional in the early 60s? Or did he have a eureka moment? It was not at all a eureka moment. It was definitely a, a bit of a steady, plodding, persistent, very thoughtful few-year period. So he's still making two-dimensional paintings in 1961. And then by 1962, after making certain things that seem more like reliefs, 
he's come to make works that sit on the floor. So it's this 1961-62 moment where it changes, but then it's really over the course of 63 and 64 that he continues to figure out what's going on with this work, doing a lot of sketching in sketchbooks, doing a lot of trial and error of making pieces that, thinking back, I can imagine he didn't quite know where they were going, but he knew he was trying to figure out how to make something that didn't already exist as an artwork. Was painting exhausted for him after what had come before? Painting was not so much exhausted, I think, although he used rhetoric like that, painting being finished, for example. I think it has something to do with that and something to do with realizing, so putting it in the positive way, actually, that the way to extend the incredible leaps, you know, isn't even enough of a word, of that prior generation of artists like Pollock or Newman or Still or Rothko, that the way to extend what they did was to go into three dimensions. Did others in his generation feel the same way, that painting was in a sense over? Certainly that's that's true. And then I think maybe even more of a parallel is of the painters of his generation. And the easiest one to talk about is Warhol, You know, at the exact same time as Judd is turning from painting to sculpture, Warhol is turning painting into something that can address everyday topics. So instead of being grand metaphysical abstraction, you can have a painting of a soup can. And in a very similar way, Warhol is saying, I have to go in a different direction than this prior generation. And Judd, going from two dimensions to three, doing the same thing. Your exhibition catalog starts out with a snippet of an interview with Donald Judd in which he pretty much firmly resists describing his work as sculpture. What was his objection? Well, his objection was that sculpture in 1960-whatever-it-was, eight, conjured up an extremely specific thing in people's mind still, which had more to do with what we might today call a statue. That was a massive thing that probably made some sort of reference to a human body that was heavy like bronze or marble. And he just didn't want his work identified by a term with that kind of work with which he felt it had absolutely nothing in common. He also disliked the term minimalist, didn't he? Yes. Artists are famous for hating the terms that are applied to them as an ism um, or a movement. And I agree with his distaste for it. And I think 50 years later, it's easy to understand that distaste because it confuses lack of lots of parts and details and so forth with lack of anything. And in fact, his works are full of meaning and structure and color and texture and so forth. But because they didn't seem busy... They were called minimal. And in fact, that label has caused a lot of misunderstanding because people having that label look at them as if they're empty of meaning or feeling or sensuousness. And they're full of all of those things. For you, what are some of the highlights or the turning points in the show? Well, we were very methodical in the show. So there are actually three-thirds of the show for three decades, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I think one thing that I love about the career as we set it out is that 
With Judd, you realize that changes in his life mirror changes in the work. And the work is, at the surface, so impersonal. But this makes you realize that there is actually a personal logic to his own evolution. So you see, for example, from room one to room two, how he goes from hand-making his own work in room one, with the assistance of his father, who was a better carpenter than he, in fact, to in room two, deciding in a very, very major for the history of modern sculpture decision to delegate the fabrication to sheet metal workers who worked at a shop nearby. And then in that second room, you see all of this work not made by Judd physically, made by Judd conceptually, intellectually, artistically, but with the hands of these sheet metal workers um, who he partnered with very closely. Then when you go from the second room to the third room, you see when he moved to Marfa, and the scale expands, the types of materials expands, literally as his property and, and the sky and landscape around him expanded, so did his vision of the work. And then in the final room, you see in the 1980s, when minimalism was no longer the hot new thing, how he responded in part by reinventing himself altogether. And what for me is a very surprising, and I think for most people, surprising sort of um, exuberance in the mood of the work. So when he shifts to using metal workers and other fabricators to create his works, did he see that fabrication stage as part of his artistic process? Or is that process really over when he completes his design on paper? Oh, definitely the whole thing is part of the process. And in fact, he never knew. He always insisted on he never knew what one of his sketches or one of his specifications for, say, materials and colors would really turn out to be till he saw the work with his two eyes. Years before he began to make objects, he established himself as a reviewer of art exhibitions for magazines. How did his writing influence his work as an artist and his reputation? He was very opinionated, wasn't he? Definitely opinionated, definitely pulling no punches in those reviews. He wrote hundreds of reviews in the early 60s for art magazines. And that exactly is the time when he was finding his own voice And for me, they're really intertwined activities because he's trekking up and down the streets of Manhattan looking at dozens and dozens of shows by his peers. At the exact same time, he's deciding he's going to put aside painting and invent this new thing, not called sculpture, but made with three-dimensional objects and, and materials. And yes, he absolutely was known more as a critic when he made his first debut sculpture show. He apparently labored to make umpteen iterations of his work while making these minute distinctions between each one. Um, What was his thinking there? And does the show help you to see these little minute distinctions? That was part of our goal, to show that by changing the material in a given form, like, say, a stack, it completely changes the work into an entirely different animal. I think that way in which the reiteration of these basic forms occupied Judd can be thought of in terms of an artist like Brancusi, who made many, many birds in space. You could look at one bird in space by Brancusi and say, oh, I know what a bird in space looks like. But then if you have the opportunity to see others that are in marble rather than in bronze, 
or that are slightly taller or slightly bigger belly, slightly different sheen of polished bronze, polished brass. All of those things make unique sculptures. And I think Judd is in that same camp in a way where for him, he never would have gotten bored of making stacks because each one truly is unique because of its specifications. And that's why he loved that term. He coined specific objects. He was very opposed to titling his works, wasn't he? He did not title his works. That's right. And I think that is because he wanted to get away from the idea of narrative, of reference, of some kind of imposed interpretation, and instead wanted them to be absolutely free for a viewer to read in whatever way he or she wanted to. So he relocates in the mid-70s to Marfa, Texas, where he developed properties as spaces for living and working, as well as for the display of art. What drove him to undertake that move, and how was his vision affected by being under those wide-open skies? He needed more space to think, to make his art, to look at his art once it was made. And in 1968, he had bought and moved into renovating, after a great deal of renovation, a big cast iron building on Spring Street in Soho. And I think it was the experience of being in that five-story, very large-scale building that in a way liberated him to understand how much the architectural space, the environmental space that he occupied prompted new ways of thinking and new ideas, and he realized that even that wasn't enough. Are works from Marfa represented in the show? We have borrowed works from Marfa, yes. The works that are installed permanently in Marfa cannot be lent elsewhere, but there are certain works that are in storage at Marfa, and and we did borrow from those things. Does the exhibition feature much of his famous furniture or discuss his thoughts about furniture design? Was was he serious when he said that furniture is not art? Um, yes. And for that reason, the furniture that is in the show is not displayed among the sculpture in the galleries. But we have a reading room before you walk in or at the end of the show. Either way, it's a full circle where there are benches and a daybed and chairs and tables where you can sit and read our catalog, books of Judd's writings, other books on the artist, relax. Um, And I think we wanted to convey that the life-work thing mattered to him, but they were distinct. So we have the gallery area, the reading room area, and um, they're complementary, as those two practices were for him, furniture and um, art objects. Overall, he seems to give as much importance to placing his art in a given space as actually making the art. Was he highly focused on exactly where his designs would be displayed? Not so much on where, but wherever it would be, that it would be done in such a way that that piece was living its best life, in a sense. So it might be in a commercial gallery, it might be in a museum, it might be on his own property, it might be in some collector's home. But in any of those cases, it needed to have enough space around it, the right space around it, to almost be like the piece was turned on. You know, for example, if it's a box, the box is just sitting there amid a whole bunch of other things on the floor. That box isn't going to radiate its power as an artwork. But suddenly when it has base around it on four sides above it, 
in dialogue with other things at good distances from it. Now it's a work that speaks, that breathes. It's amazing to witness. Apparently, Judd was bitter over the way he felt that museums handled contemporary work, especially his own work. Was he justified in this? He was justified in this, especially at the time that his works were brand new. They were very unfamiliar. They were materials that were not precious. They were materials that were usually used for industrial or commercial purposes. And a lot of the art handlers, a lot of the registrars, even people at shipping companies who were professionals, just could not somehow digest the idea that these things were as precious as marble or papyrus or bronze or canvas and and did mishandle them often. Today it's different. Today, this many decades later, we know these are great works of art that need great care. Did it make you nervous during the installation? We were nervous. But we were also excellent. We, our crews were unbelievably respectful and thoughtful and careful. Then in the 1980s, we find him making a home in Switzerland while keeping this footprint in New York and Marfa. What was the attraction there? Judd loved Switzerland, I think, for, and this is a stereotype, but for their attention to precise detail and careful workmanship the level of workmanship he found in the workplaces there was superior to that that he found here. And he wanted his ideas to be executed as precisely as they could be. And he found that there with great, great pleasure. He also starts to embrace color in a different way, doesn't he, in Switzerland? Yes, and that's in part, again, a technical reason. They have commercial color charts European color charts, RAL, RAL, um, is the name of, of the color system that's mainly made for industrial purposes, like, for example, a green that's for every highway sign in a certain country. You can't have different shades of green for the highway signs. They all have to be the same green, for example. So he knew he had that consistency that mattered to him. And there was a system among these Swiss aluminum workers for that color to be baked onto the metal in a very, very perfect and precise way so that it almost felt like it was green metal, not painted metal. He loved that. It seems like this show could be an eye-opener for a younger generation. How do you see them reacting to it? That's what we're really eager to discover because there's no guessing. There are so many people under, say... 40 or maybe even 50, who haven't had the opportunity to see a great number of Judd works altogether. And so much has changed in the world, of course, and um, in the history of art particularly. And we are all ears and eyes to see how these works are read today. Well, thank you, Anne. Thank you. The online exhibition Judd opens on the 23rd of April at MoMA.org. Now, as a compliment to the MoMA exhibition, a show of Donald Judd's work from 1970 to 1994 was due to open on the 18th of April at the Three Davids Verna Galleries on West 19th Street. That show was curated by Flavin Judd, the artist's son and the artistic director of the Judd Foundation. 
Our senior editor in New York, Margaret Carrigan, met with him at our New York studio just before the lockdown came into effect to talk about his father and the show. Okay, Flavin. So there is an interesting question on my mind, which is that as we have this big moment this spring in New York kind of dedicated to the work of your father, Donald Judd, and we see it across MoMA, we see it at David's Warner, uh, Gagosian's putting on a show. Um, I think there's this whole new attention being paid to, of course, uh, the legacy of minimalism, but that's a term that that your father himself had an issue with. Can you tell me a little bit about what that issue was and whether or not this this kind of new attention is going to help break that or um, broaden and deepen the understanding of what that might mean? Well, I don't really concern myself with the reception of the work. Um, I think that's kind of um, hopeless because, I mean, the, the audience is composed of different individuals you don't know. So that's it. In terms of the word minimalism, I mean, it was a derogatory term used by art critics who didn't understand and didn't necessarily like the work. So it's hardly surprising that Don was not interested in using, applying it to his work, and he certainly didn't feel he was part of any kind of group. Um, and even the group that is usually um, under the rubric of minimalism doesn't hold together if you really investigate it. Um, and as a word, it doesn't work. As I've said before, it's like calling all Italian restaurants pizzerias and then getting upset because the one next to you doesn't have pizza. <laughs> it's self-defeating as a term. And in our case, in Judd Foundation, I mean, we just um, we just try to do what's best for the work. Uh, we, we obviously have spaces where we can control the way the work looks in New York and Texas, um, and to some extent in galleries, almost to no extent in museums. And it's you're basically fighting mediocrity, which is, you know, um, where the the term minimalism came from. It's like uh, people not paying attention. So um, you can't make people pay attention, but you can just do what's best for the work and hope for the best. I think that's a really interesting point that you make because um, there is this kind of inherent tension between um, – your father's work and, and the institutional landscape, and he was famous for his just distrust of institutions. Um, so how do you kind of square that circle now that there is this major retrospective? And in what ways is the John Foundation, as you said, kind of like taking responsibility for the way the work is presented um, and, and its mission in that regard, a kind of ongoing retrospective that is perhaps more authentically Judd? I think it's about prioritization and I, 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 I'm not a big fan of museums, quite honestly. Um, um, I think MoMA, the MoMA show is, is kind of the best show you'll ever get out of a museum. Um, but that, that should be the case. I mean, we've been talking to Anne for 10 years and, and her curators for 10 years now. And that's, that's what it is. It's fine. Um, the gallery shows are the same thing. You just do your best. I think the difference is, though, that in the case of Judd Foundation we prioritize the art over everything else. So um, if you go into our spaces in Marfa and it's too cold for you, that's just too bad. Um, we're not going to install heating ducts just to keep you happy. And it's, it's a lot, a million little decisions go into prioritizing the art. And that's not what museums do. Museums have think about their audience. They think about um, um, teaching people about culture and about other abstract concepts that probably don't exist. 
and they have different priorities. Obviously, the galleries have other priorities as well, but in, in the cases where the galleries we work with, most of them make sacrifices to put on shows. So in the case of gallery shows, sometimes there's nothing for sale, but they still do the show. So galleries should get credit for taking risks that, for instance, museums are actually less likely to take. Um, but it's all about um, maintaining standards because, I mean, mediocrity is like fascism and entropy. If you, if you don't fight it all the time, it's just going to take over your life. So... Um, let's talk a little bit about the gallery show that you are working with David Zwerner on this spring. Um, I thought it was really interesting because actually when I was um, in grad school, I read your father's essay from 1983, a long discussion about not about masterpieces, but why there are so few of them. I admit to only having read part one and not part two. Um, but uh, in that, he says that today art is only a cut above a commodity. And, and although business is preferable to patronage, um, Art of a high quality should be part of the opposition to commerce. And later on in the essay, he goes on to say that art hasn't yet been converted into commerce the way that something like architecture or music or dance has. But now that you're putting on um, what is a commercial gallery show, how do you position his work uh, as an opposition to commerce in that setting? The commerce part of the art has always existed side by side. And there wouldn't be Marfa without the selling of artworks to fund it. So um, it's not that it's a contradiction. It's just that it's a balance. And you have to try to keep the balance. Um, we could have done really bad gallery shows in in the wrong places at the wrong times with the wrong artworks for the wrong reasons and messed it all up. Um, so it's, it's just, uh, uh, an insistence on doing things a certain way. That's why probably judge shows, even in the same galleries that other people's work go into, look slightly different from their shows. Um, and it's not that it's bad that, let's say, uh, an artwork is sold and it goes into somebody's home. That's not a bad thing necessarily. But you don't use, for instance, I don't know, the artwork to sell Chevrolets because that's debasing the artwork. Um, so it's just decisions you have to make um, in all these cases. And in a lot of cases, as you see, you know, MoMA's the first major show since 1988. So if you're, you know, 20, year old, 20 years old, you've only seen gallery shows in New York. So... Um, it's the galleries in most cases are your only chance to actually see the work because seeing Don's work, you know, one or two pieces scattered in museums around the country isn't going to do anything for you. You'll never understand it. The commercialization of the art world obviously has existed forever and it's just about managing it and, and making sure that it doesn't take over. Um, and again, prioritizing the art. If you start prioritizing the collectors or the galleries or the museums or the audiences, then you're upside down. That's when problems start. Um, I think it's kind of interesting what the role that the foundation plays in that respect of, of like managing the legacy of the work in that way and mediating between galleries and institutions. And can you talk a little bit about how you prevent that from becoming from self-institutionalizing, I guess I would say? stay small. As far as institutions go, we're really small. We have a board of seven. We have a staff of 22 or something. And that is because we have buildings to take care of, which is very rare for an artist foundation. And most 
iris foundations are painters and they're giving away money because they don't have buildings they don't have collections so we're very different um i think institutions are dangerous because they become a concept that has to be defended and they become their own things and i think in our case it was always important that we not become a uh, an institution that is a thing but that we have artworks to protect so yes we have something we have to do yes we have an institution to do it but we're not institutional in the sense of um if you buy health insurance you're signing your life away because you're signing with an institution it's just not the same thing and we're not in in like a normal museum because again um we're prioritizing the art which is why it's there and we haven't flipped to i don't know um selling uh prioritizing the the sale of knickknacks or trying to cram as many people as possible into the spaces neither of which are priorities so it's just about sticking with don's priorities and keeping those as our priorities and that's what keeps us kind of on the straight and narrow obviously you have a much more personal connection to the work um and the ideas and the legacy that's being built up around don's work now and growing up around his art and architecture and design in Marfa, Texas, were you aware of the kind of significance it would kind of take on over the next 50 years? And, and now that we're having this major moment now, what, it, what kind of significance will continue to take on? Well, growing up, I wasn't aware of that anything had significance. I knew that we were different from most people because Don was an artist. But then again, most of his friends were artists. So to me, that was normal. But the rest of the world was very not normal. But in terms of significance, that's again a, a perception issue, and I, it's I can't I can't even I don't I didn't understand it when I was growing up, and now I just ignore it. I don't care. We just try to do what we can, the best we can. That's the perfect way to end it. Thank you so much. A bit later, Donna de Salvo will tell us about Duchamp's Etant Donné, and we have a unique response to Judd from Roberta Smith. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. In Germany, the government is easing the coronavirus lockdown very cautiously from next week, so that shops which are smaller than 800 square metres can open as long as they restrict entry and avoid long queues of people outside. As part of this gradual relaxation of restrictions, art galleries are planning to open. The BVDG Association of Dealers says it's sure that many will take up the opportunity. Unlike Austria, masks will not be compulsory, but the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, has strongly recommended their use. This week marked a year since the fire at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, and Francesco Banderin, an architect and former senior official at UNESCO, has written an extensive article exploring what's already been done and the challenges ahead. Meanwhile, the German government has offered its support with the restoration, particularly with the stained glass windows. Monica Gruters, the German culture secretary, said German cathedrals' glass workshops, which have worked on the restoration of Cologne Cathedral, for instance, can offer real help. And finally, in our latest long read on the effects of the coronavirus, our art market editor Anna Brady has explored the resources available to art businesses in the UK who are struggling to pay their bills because of the coronavirus lockdown, from rent waivers to financial transparency and insurance. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's, 
With over 250 years of auctions, Christie's leads the art world with live and online sales in more than 80 categories. Christie's private sales allow for buying or selling fine art, decorative objects, jewellery and watches, all on your schedule. Art anytime. Explore more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, for the latest in our series Lonely Works, in which we zero in on artworks in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus. This week, Donna DeSalvo, the Senior Adjunct Curator of Special Projects at the Dia Foundation in New York, has chosen Marcel Duchamp's Eton Donne in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Margaret spoke to Donna in lockdown in New York, and you can see images of the work as they discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. So, Donna, you've chosen Marcel Duchamp's Etant Donnée uh, in the Philadelphia Museum. And even if you can see this work online or, you know, reproductions of it, it really doesn't compare to seeing it in person. There are these little peepholes, essentially, that you can look through. And it's this very intimate kind of scene, very surreal, very dreamlike. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the history of the work and and the imagery in it? Well, it was Duchamp's last work, and he really made it in um, isolation. He was working actually at a building, first on 14th Street and then at um, on East 11th Street um, in, a, in a, what was essentially a, a, a kind of an office building that had once been a hotel. And, you know, the origins to a certain extent date back to the earlier parts of his career when he was, of course, very involved with the Surrealist movement. And I think a lot of things having to do about Surrealist display and exhibition, which was a real interest, of course, on the part of the Surrealists. Um, And so, you know, the work has these very interesting sort of links to earlier moments in his life. And then, of course, uh, also on a personal level, you know, the models. So when you look through the peepholes of a Spanish door, a very heavy wooden door, you're looking out onto this tableau of, of a, a woman, displayed, uh, spread eagle, holding a gas lamp. And in the background, of course, is this um, uh, very pastoral scene. She's lying in twigs. And what's so interesting, of course, about the work is when you think about someone like Duchamp, who in some ways uh, eschewed the sort of more traditional um, material quality of work, it's actually incredibly intricate. Um, He used photos and various things to create the background. Um, The model itself or the woman um, is the the body is based on Duchamp's um, girlfriend at the time, who was a Brazilian artist, Maria Martin. And then, of course, eventually his wife, uh, second wife, Tini Duchamp, is the model for the arm. So there's a lot that speaks, of course, to the whole um, history of display. But, you know, I think the other thing, and even in my, you know, kind of refreshing myself about this work, um, the idea that in that early days of surrealism, it was very much also this response to what was going on in the conditions of the world at that time in the 30s both before and after World War II. And so there was a lot of interest in things about, you know, the like back magic and tarot cards and all things along those lines, but also this return or turn to a kind of interior world in the presence of, you know, fascism and the devastation that had happened during World War II. So of course Duchamp throughout his work, as we know, 
um, was always trying to um, destabilize, in a sense, what the work of art is, whether it's the famous urinal or, you know, the bicycle wheel, uh, or, of course, then the work that really precedes this, which is also in Philadelphia Museum, The Bride Stripped Bare by Her Bachelors. And, you know, what's so pr compelling about this work is, is I think, the, 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 you know, the, the shock of it, of looking through these peepholes, and, you know, at the time when it was first shown at the Philadelphia Museum, so after his death, his family um, was instructed to take the work apart and to install it in a museum. And it was Anne Donnencourt, who was then the curator at Philadelphia, who eventually became the director, who really orchestrated the acquisition of this work. And there's a very, very uh, intense manual of how it's to be put together. In fact, there was a show years ago that Michael Taylor organized at Philadelphia. I think it was on the anniversary of the piece that um, lays out all of the materials, all of the copious notes. So actually, it was a really laborious process of handmaking, which really strikes one as so different you know, than what you think about. Even the large glass was broken in transit. And, you know, he accepted that. He really loved that it was broken. And he said that was what finished the work, although it's considered kind of an unfinished work. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, all of those pulled together uh, uh, in, to make this a very surprising work. You know, the other thing is that after he made the large glass, uh, he said he was announcing his retirement from art making only to become a competitive chess player. Um, and so then, of course, when he moved to the United States, he began working in secret in room 403 of, uh, I looked up the address, 80 East 11th Street. And to think of Duchamp working in this little nondescript room um, for all of these years is really, you know, kind of an astounding thing. So, you know, it was made over a period of years from 46. So we worked on it for 20 years. Which is really insane. And, and I think that, you know, working in a nondescript room is something that a lot of us can really identify with right now. And I, I, I wonder how much do we know about that studio and why was he doing it in secret and why was he working on it for so long? Well, there was a, I found that there was a Turkish artist who actually restaged a um, sort of a reconstruction of the piece. So online, you can actually see an image of what the room looked like. It still had the black and white tile as it once had had. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I know the answer to why he decided to do that. Um, there is something, you know, kind of like, well, it's incredibly bizarre to what, what his motivation was to work in this way. And, you know, it, like, I think this, the, the work is subject to so much, so many different levels of interpretation. Um, I mean, one thing I find really compelling is this sort of public-private aspect of it, because to some extent he intended for it to be public, although he made it in private. And the doors that you look through, of course, create that kind of separation. But I think if you think a lot about what surrealism was involved with, with dreams, the unconscious, those um, very much understanding the power of display, um, it, it sort of makes sense that maybe this would be his last epic work. Why he chose to do it without anyone knowing, other than his, his I guess, family for the most part, 
um, is a uh, you know is a very very good question. Now you know when the work was premiered, it you know it was seen as very controversial at the time, and you know certainly there's been a level of feminist critique of this woman who you're not certain. I mean, it's been compared to a rape scene, scene of murder uh, of her whole. Of course, except she's holding this gas lamp. The, which he calls the illuminating gas. And, you know, there's some idea, I mean, there's something very mystical about this work. And I guess people have been trying to crack that nut for a lot of years. It's certainly generated a lot of dissertations. And, um, you know, I was curious, I found in an interview that uh, Calvin Tompkins, who wrote a great biography of Duchamp, so in 64, he quotes um, Jasper Johns. John talks about this as being uh, he said it was the strangest work of art any museum has ever had in it. And I thought, wow, if that's, you know, <laughs> that's kind of a very powerful uh, statement. And then the other thing is when Tompkins interviewed Duchamp, this is, if I can just read this short little passage. Please. Um, this, is, this is Duchamp in 64 saying, uh, quote, I think there is a great deal to the idea of not doing a thing, but that when you do a thing, you don't do it in five minutes or five hours, but in five years. I think there's an element of slowness of the execution that adds to the possibilities of producing something that will be durable in its expression, that will be considered important five centuries later. And I thought, wow, here we are in this weird slowed down time where we can't work or live in the ways that we're used to. He was the great person of, of, of modernity, and yet, to a certain extent, this is almost a kind of reaction against the modern world. Maybe that had something to do with it, you know, to the extent that he withdrew um, from the world as it had become, and particularly in the aftermath, you know, of the war. And, of course, he began this in, in 46, so, you know, I think that's a huge component. And of course, Duchamp scholars can expound on this far greater than I can. Um, when was the first time that you encountered this work? You know, I guess I'm trying to think, you know, it might have been like in the early, you know, it might have been while I was in college, possibly going to Philadelphia Museum for the first time. And I, you know, I didn't really, I knew like why Duchamp was important but it took me a while to fi figure it out. You know, certainly in survey classes, you know, Duchamp was very key. But he's a very complex figure. And aside from the obvious of the urinal and the ready-made, you know, th there's so much complexity in the work that I only started to understand as years went on. But every time I go to the Philadelphia Museum, and they did a show a number of years ago, and now I'm trying to remember what year it was, that uh, Walter Hopps, one of the great curators and, and Donnacourt curated together uh, and it, about the, about Duchamp and, and this ex, and this work and the other work. And I remember I made a, you know, day trip to Philadelphia to see this show. And every time I go to the Philadelphia museum, I have my favorites there, but I always go to see this work. And, you know, it's in that great gallery, the, the large glass, new descending staircase, the whole gallery of Duchamp, the Ahrensburg collection. And I, I never fail, I never fail to take a, make a visit. And it is, my relationship to it has changed over the years in view of a lot having to do with technology and particularly digital technology and the screen and the virtual 
you know, I mean, he's created a diorama which speaks to a virtual world. So it's not a big leap, frankly, to go to any of the virtual reality platforms, Second Life. I mean, you can think of a million. In Duchamp's world, we're projecting onto an image, our interpretations of it. Now we can enact them, you know, through a level, we can interface in a way that you couldn't in Duchamp's time. And in the, in the large glass, you know, there's also a lot of, a lot of it has to do with science and technology and you know, this is where that, that I, I just think that work, I mean, I've said this wonderful opportunity you've given me and really made me to sort of do this deep dive and really think about this work in an entirely new way. And of course, that bears witness to what Duchamp has said about a, a work having an enduring life. So maybe his, you know, the 20 years he spent working on this certainly paid off. That's perfect. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Oh, my great pleasure. And go to the Philadelphia Museum when we can go to museums again. And of course, um, be safe. You can find out more about Eton Donne at philomuseum.org. And finally this week, a special contribution from Roberta Smith, the co-chief art critic at the New York Times. Roberta knew Donald Judd from when she was a student and became a close friend, writing regularly about his work. She gave a eulogy at Judd's memorial when he died in 1994, and for the last 25 years the original typed manuscript for that eulogy has been tucked away in a desk drawer. But Roberta has pulled it out just for us, and you'll hear it in her hands as she reads the eulogy for the first time since the memorial. Before that, she spoke briefly to Margaret about her connection with Judd. So, Roberta, you wrote this about 25 years ago and read it at Donald Judd's memorial. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first met Donald Judd and, and how you got to know him and the role he played in your life and, and, and your relationship to his work as well? Well, I met Judd as a, as a student in the independent study program at the Whitney. And he when you applied to the Whitney, when you were not an artist, you you your application was to present a project that you wanted to do. And I said I wanted to write about minimalism and its relationship to other art like pyramids and stuff like that. So for some reason, Judd agreed to do it. I mean, he was very well known at that point. And I think he only got $600 from the Whitney. But um, I went to see him and he said he was not interested in minimalism. So with some thought, took a week or so, I decided I'd do my project on him, which, of course, was much more agreeable to him. And so um, I got to know him and his family, and I uh, wrote my paper. This was in 1968. I wrote my paper on his transition from painting to sculpture, from two dimensions to three dimensions, which had not been looked at at all. He had barely looked at the paintings uh, he had made, you know, 10 years earlier. And so I interviewed him and wrote this paper. And then when I came back, I also uh, knew him a bit. And I worked for him after that. So I was pretty familiar with his work. And um, at one point, I said to him, why don't, wouldn't you like, he had done all this writing, you know, in arts. He hadn't done much more than that at that point. 
I said, wouldn't you like to have your writing in one place? And he said, yes. And so for several months, I was working at the Modern as a secretary, but for several months, I would take these stacks of arts magazine, which he'd written for for about four years, 59 to 63 or four or something. I'd take them back to my place, which was, was in also in Soho, and I would type them. And it, it was a very mindless way to absorb his writing. You didn't even have to think about it. It's actually a tactic that uh, young journalists use. They kind of convert writing back into manuscript form. So when I was done, I had 150 single-space pages of Judd's writing, and I had just absorbed a great deal of his thinking. And uh, which, you know, I then had to work my way out from under over over the years. You spoke at his memorial service back in 1994 at the University Club in New York, and you still have what you wrote for that service, and and you're willing to share that with us today. How has it kind of been looking over those notes now? It's it's a little weird. I mean. I was I was very proud of it when I read it at his memorial and I got a you know I I pieced it together I you know I had ideas about him and then I sort of the second half is just me piecing together his writing which was very easy to do and uh but it seems a little archaic you know it doesn't I'm not I, I'm a real Judd believer in this and I have a, you know I have a different view now it's a little more uh complicated let's say uh, I, I rem- and I'm looking at this piece of this. It's you know, back when we used typewriters, and I've got these areas crossed out. And I remember Jerry and I were driving uptown to the uh, to the university club, and I was terrified that it was too long, so I was like crossing things out as we went. And I'm going to reinstate a couple of them. Uh, but and then I think I stood up and read it too fast. I was told afterwards, so I'm going to try not to do that this time. But it was—I don't know—it was—it was so such a sad moment, and and everybody. I think it was in March. I think it was really just literally about uh, twenty-six years ago. It was just such a strange kind of out-of-body experience. I think for a lot of people there. Just because he died, he was, you know, 64 was young even then. It's much younger now. Okay, here we go. No one who ever knew him will forget the hard, lucid power and the unwavering certainty of Donald Judd's mind. Its amazing rigor enabled him to range far and wide through art, history, and philosophy, through design and architecture without faltering, creating a wholeness of vision that has only a few equals in the art of this century. As Judd himself put it in a 1983 essay on abstract expressionism, the problem for any artist is to find the concatenation that will grow. The first work that an artist feels is theirs is not a solution limiting the possibilities, but is work that opens to limitless possibilities. Limitless possibilities seems almost an understatement when you consider what Judd accomplished, despite a slow, meticulous start and a much too early death that robbed us of what would have been called his late work. He was a great artist who did for sculpture something close to what Pollock did for painting. He was also a visionary of everyday life, 
in the tradition of William Morris, Gustav Stickley, and the artist of the Bauhaus and Russia just after the revolution. The spine of his achievement was his art, which combined an austere visual morality with what might be called the joy of the real. Along with Chamberlain's, Oldenburg's, and Flavin's, Judd's art gave three-dimensional work a visual intensity that had largely been the domain of abstract painting, the medium at which he toiled so assiduously throughout the 1950s until he backed step by empirical step into something that he declined to call sculpture. Looking at his precise tensile volumes, I'm often reminded of the title of a painting by Roy Lichtenstein, later paraphrased by Dan Flavin in one of his own titles. It's, the title is, I can see the whole room and there's nobody in it. Although his work became formally more complicated so that the comprehension of it extended in time and space, its clarity never diminished. One was always able to account directly or by deduction for the whole thing. Every grain of contained space, every plane of intrinsic color, every detail of construction. In addition to his work, Judd wrote art criticism, which greatly clarified the rich turmoil of the early 1960s, helping to define the achievement of his remarkable generation. And he collected. He retained an unusual and representative quantity of his own work. He acquired the art of contemporaries he admired, and also so much else that one doesn't know where to begin. The art and artifacts, the furniture and ceramics, the textiles, everything around him played out in a minor key, the ideas of autonomy, scale, truth to materials, and color that fueled his art. They also formed their own concatenation of links and overlaps, cutting through different times and across all kinds of local cultures. And he built his own museums, or possibly a few of them. In the Chinati Foundation and in his own dwellings and workspaces, many of which were brilliantly readjusted houses and industrial buildings, he brought the clear, totally revealed volumes of his sculpture into habitable space and also into the design of furniture, giving both these endeavors a rare seeing-the-whole-room visuality. He also was, to some extent, a librarian, archivist, a political and social thinker, as well as his own art historian. Writing in recent years on the Russian constructivists, the abstract expressionists, on Mondrian, Reinhardt, and Albers, paying tribute to them with fresh insights, and also charting his own artistic ancestry. Judd could also, it must be said, be his own worst enemy, possessed of an intractability, a temper, and a defensiveness that often escalated breachable differences and normal disappointments into irrevocable breaks. Judd was famous for his feuds. His nearly complete lack of doubt usually served him well in his art and writing, but it could limit his capacity for empathy, which didn't always work so well when it came to other humans. But most people who knew him remember moments of inspired goodness and generosity, which were as basic to his personality as his anger and dissatisfaction. Sometimes it seemed that Judd wasn't interested in other humans as much as in the vast geography of human endeavor, in learning about it, preserving parts of it that he deemed valuable, and adding something to it on as many fronts as possible. Things that exist, exist, and everything is on their side, he once wrote. His love of things that existed extended to the natural world. Quote, 
Here, everywhere, the destruction of new land is a brutality, he wrote in Marfa, adding, I've never built a house on new land. Like everything else he did, Judd's writing has a distinct, unmistakable quality. It's spare, forthright, and peculiarly stylish, characterized by compressions of both language and feeling, and occasionally punctuated with adjectives that sound a bit archaic, but are actually quite specific, to use one of his favorite compliments. Alternately exultant for the new art that seemed to be emerging under his nose, and exasperated with what he perceived as the unnecessary faltering of abstract expressionism, the reviews are written very much in the trenches, as working critics like to say, but are always fearlessly opinionated and frequently generous, seeing the advancement of art as a communal project for which many people are responsible. For example, quote, Brooks, de Kooning, Guston, and Motherwell are adding poor paintings to their earlier good ones, he wrote in 1964. And the loss of the good ones they aren't painting is a major loss for American art. One review of a New York painter began, the fact and number of the gelid students of the New York school make an unusual failure. And by the way, gelid was one of those words I had to look up. It means frozen, extremely cold. In the early 50s, any number of developments seemed possible. Most of the beginnings quickly ended in shuffled or retrograded versions of their first coherent idea. It is ironic that thinking which was supposed to exemplify freedom should have assumed such suicidal rigidity. It has taken, with exceptions, a new set of artists to continue the advance. And he's, of course, referring to his own generation. Similar but more sympathetic sentiments occur in the end of a review of two other New York painters. Any criticism of Pace and Dugbore and other moribund expressionists is laid to a bias in favor of newer work. Actually, good expressionist painting, especially among the artists with whom it originated, would be highly welcome. The debacle is a sad thing. An artist cannot develop a style if he must always jump to newer things, assuming he started with something fairly contemporary. The general declaration that abstract expressionism and loose painting generally is dead is presumptuous. It seems so now with so much poor work around, but history, while it does move, does not move that fast. Anyway, that history is a consensus, an abstraction. Older painters who learn from the new could be highly praised. For example, on Stuart Davis's show of paintings from 1958 to 62, which he considered first rate. The quote, amazing continuity of Davis's work does not seem to have been kept up with blinders. In fact, could not have been. Neither has Davis been startled into compromises with newer developments. Some older painters abandoned developed styles for one of the various ideas included under abstract expressionism, spoiling both. Davis must also have faced the fact of increased power and different meanings. Instead of compromising, he kept all that he had learned and invented and taking the new power into account benefited. When art was not up to his standards, Judd's opening salvos could be efficient and amusing. First, this is poor Baskin. Second, Baskin is mediocre anyway. His most notable work is so rudimentary in composition 
as to make the use of the word debatable. Another opening of a review not about Henry Moore starts this way, quote, the atavistic imagery of Henry Moore, stupid without Moore's formal power, is the modern aspect with which some liberal-minded sculptors obfuscate ordinary chunks of the world. This double-barreled boredom is responsible for the vitriolic tone of this review. Of course, he could be equally efficient when impressed. One of my favorite praising openers, written of a show of Frank Stella's copper paintings. Quote, criticism is pretty much after the fact. Frank Stella's paintings are one of the facts. And a memorable closing line of a review of a Lucas Samaras show. Samaras's work is messy and improbable, as well as exceptional, and should present a general threat to much current cleanly dullness. Judd had an admitted, often stated, low tolerance for representational painting that accepted only a few artists, primarily Rosenquist, Lichtenstein, and John Wesley. A review of an English landscape painter begins, Petrarch, about 1327, climbed Mont Vertu near Avignon. He was accompanied by the belief that the view from the top would be significant and unaccompanied by his friends who saw no reason to go. Petrarch was right for 600 years, and now his friends are right. But he could give credit where he thought it due, even if his interest did not lie in that direction. In the early 60s, he complains about the exclusion of Andrew Wyeth from a Whitney annual, which, quote, seems to consider the right wing alive. Wyeth, at least, believes in his work enough to be competent and thorough and should be included. He is nearly alone on the right, however. An exuberant review of a show of Lichtenstein's paintings seems to outline later, often bitter writings on American life and politics. Quote, a rich, memorable, and hugely satisfying new show by the author of I Don't Care, I'd Rather Sink. In an idyllic frame of mind, he has painted sunsets, seascapes, and the Temple of Apollo. These are different from the comics, aside from being painted differently. Lots of people hang up pictures of sunsets, the sea, notable buildings, and other supposedly admirable subjects. These things are thought laudable, agreeable, without much thought. No one pays much attention to them. Probably no one is enthusiastic about one. There isn't anything there to dislike. They are pleasant, bland, and empty. And then he sort of, you just hear the start of a screed. A lot of visible things are like this. Most modern buildings, new colonial stores, lobbies, most houses, most furniture, most clothing, sheet aluminum, and plastic with leather texture, the formica-like wood, the cute and modern patterns inside jets and drugstores. Who has decided that aluminum should be textured like leather? Not Alcoa, who makes it. To them, there is just a demand. It's not likely any of the buyers think much about it, the stuff just exists, not objectionably to many people, slightly agreeably to many. Basically, again, no one has thought about it. It's in limbo. Much political opinion is like this. Much religion, much art, of which the chromos are an example. Most opinion, in fact, musicals, ice shows, graduation ceremonies. No one knows anything about Greek temples, and everyone agrees they're great. Lichtenstein is working with this passive appreciation and opinion. It's part of these paintings 
and is an interesting and complex aspect there. It isn't adventitious, as social comment is supposed to be. It is social comment, and it is visible. Enthusiastic reviews could oscillate between list-making and an almost magisterial grandeur, the beginning of a 1960 review of John Chamberlain's work. Three aspects are readily apparent in Chamberlain's sculpture. It is redundant, each contains a distinct structure, and it is colored. The folded sheet metal from automobile bodies is voluminous, apparently somewhat unmanageable, and constitutes an essential form that is less than its bulk requires. It is grandiloquent, proliferating exhaust pipes, rods, and billows of metal, exceedingly keen on remaining junk and proud to be confused with an ordinary wreck. And the ostensibly descriptive finish of a 1963 review of Lee Bontecous, talking about one of her reliefs. It is a minatory object, seemingly capable of firing or swallowing. The image extends from something as social as war to something as private as sex, making one an aspect of the other. The best American art is, in diverse ways, skeptical. Bondicu makes her work so strong and material that it can only assert itself. Its quality is too intense to be extended into solipsistic generalizations. The work has a primitive, oppressive, and unmitigated individuality. It is credible and awesome. Judd once wrote of Malevich, quote, Malevich paints as if he's busy, with a lot of ideas to be gotten down, and with the knowledge that color, form, and surface are what matter, and that care doesn't have much to do with these. Judd also wrote as if he were busy with a lot of ideas to get down. His essays tended to be composed, as he said of his sculpture, one thing after another, barely order at all, and frankly sometimes seem rather strung together. His last essay, quote, some aspects of color in general and red and black in particular, which he was supposed to read on receiving the Sickens Award in Amsterdam last fall, discusses space and art, rehearses the emergence of his own generation, laments once more the state of criticism in art history, discusses the education of artists, color in architecture and urban planning, before committing itself to a profound and illuminating discussion of the role of color in art, the history of its theories. Although he also allows that what he really needs to do is write a book on the subject. Its closing reference, a telling one, is to Alfred Jensen. It had taken Judd nearly two decades to devise a method for using more than two colors at a time in his objects. His solution was a series of individual colored pans that hark back to a common bread baking pan he used in one of his earliest reliefs, both of which are on view at the modern. These bright elements make each color a distinct physical entity while defining a relatively closed volume with a series of smaller ones. They also bring into three dimension Jensen's thick blocks of saturated color. In the midst of an article on abstract expressionism, Judd could suddenly, subtly take a little sidetrack into something like a full-scale statement of belief. Quote, the first two necessities for Newman, Still, Rothko, and Pollock were to create a new reality and a new wholeness. The only thing they could claim to be whole was themselves. A person thinking, feeling, and perceiving, which occurs all at once, is whole, even though the person is short of information in all regards. Partial knowledge is no reason to make art that is fragmentary or hesitant. 
After all, anyone who now knows some simple science knows more than anyone earlier praising deities. As for oneself, one can know as has always been known by the attentive. The only reality that can be known at once and more or less completely is oneself. This reality can sometimes be known as it becomes art. Thus, the work of art is reality. And finally, in his 1991 essay about Albers, his writing is unusually benign, almost sweet. Quote, I've seen a lot of paintings by Albers, often singly, over half the world. They are always amazingly beautiful. This is especially true of Rothko, too, although the nature of his work is different. There is a certain very nice quality in some art and literature that is calm and friendly, even light, and absolutely realistic about the nature of humanity and of life. It's not cold at all or very somber, and certainly not nostalgic. It's very much about being alive. End quote. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. You can read a wealth of Roberta Smith's writings on Judd, including a review of the latest Gagosian exhibition at the New York Times website, mytimes.com. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage, and do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. You can find the Telegram invite code at the top of our daily newsletters. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David's also the editor. Thanks to Margaret, Nancy, Roberta and Flavin and Donna. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.